Thank you, Jim. Actually, I'm very impressed that we have so many people here this morning. Not, I, I would have thought we would have about half the number, and when we started, I, we actually did. And so, but uh, considering how many of you are actually Okies, and this is the only kind of weather you've ever known, this is just this is something. I, Barb, Barb will tell you I often laugh at Okies in the snow, since I was raised in Western New York and learned to drive in this stuff. But I also realize we have a Minnesotan here and a guy from Finland, for goodness sakes. So, anyway, and Ohio, yeah, and, and, well, we've got Floridians, and so, yeah, yeah, so, there we go. Anyway, I'm glad you're all here this morning, because it, uh, it's no fun to preach to two or three, um, even though where two or three are gathered, the Lord is in our midst, and we know that, but uh, anyway, let me read this morning as we start from uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 12. It's also on your bulletin cover this morning. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of delving into your word today and realizing all the things your word has to say about this wonderful privilege we have of prayer. We pray, Lord, that uh, as we look at these uh, themes this morning, your Holy Spirit would guide and direct and illuminate to our heart those things you would have us understand, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin this morning with a little story about an especially verbal and boisterous child in a Sunday morning church service. He was being pretty disruptive, so his dad got pretty angry pretty quickly, and before you know it, his dad picks him up under his arm, and he's carrying him out of the service. His dad was a little angry, he was a little embarrassed. And no one in the congregation really kind of batted an eyebrow at all until the boy on his way out, just as he was going out the door, he hollers out, Y'all pray for me now! (laughs) We ask for prayer for lots of different things, don't we? But as I've prayed and I've studied and I've read and thought extensively over these past several weeks about what really is without a doubt one of the most important spiritual activities that we can undertake. I've realized something about myself. You'll have to decide whether or not some of these things apply to you this morning. But I have to confess that I have an inadequate and underdeveloped view of prayer. And it's reflected in my attitudes, it's reflected in my actions, and sometimes my words. I thought first about the phrase that serves as the sermon title this morning. How many times have you or have I, after describing or lamenting a situation over which we clearly have little or no control, or maybe a situation that appears mostly hopeless. We finish that discussion with the phrase, well, all we can do is pray. Now, I don't mean that to sound like it does when I say it, but I'm starting to think that such statements, all we can do is pray, betray something in me. They betray a deficient an underdeveloped appreciation for and value of an understanding of what prayer really is, how important and how powerful prayer really is. All we can do is pray? Doesn't that statement sound like a last resort? It's as if I'm saying, well, if only I could do something, it might get better or fixed or whatever it is we're talking about. But since I can't do something, all I can do is pray. Now, I'm not going to be the word policeman and scold you for saying something like that to me, because I'm guessing some of you will say that to me at some point. 
In fact, I'm guessing I'll probably find myself in a conversation, and maybe even sometime soon, when I say the same thing. That's because there are a lot of things that leave us feeling helpless and unable to do anything on our own, unable to do something about it, right? And that's one way in which our understanding of prayer is actually very deficient. We have this overconfidence in our ability to affect change in a situation. We think we have some level of control when the truth is we don't have any. We have this idea that if we or someone else could just do something, do anything, then a given circumstance will change for the better. But we so easily forget what Jesus spoke in John chapter 15, verse 5, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. You can do nothing. And how do we abide in him? One of the chief ways that God has given us to abide in him is that we pray. Author Jerry Bridges once wrote that prayer is the tangible expression of our dependence on God. When we pray, we're recognizing that without him, we can do nothing. We're owning the fact that despite what we might think of our talents, our abilities, our resources, our emotional or our physical or our spiritual capacity, apart from Christ, we can do nothing. We have nothing. We are nothing. That very idea is repulsive to us. That's pride, isn't it? That's because pride is the original sin. And we generally, most of us, think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. Well, yeah, I know that I need God, but if I could just do this or that or say this or that, then the situation would change. We have this deadly self-sufficiency in us. I say deadly because the more that we rely on ourselves, the more troubled our circumstances in our lives can really become. Now, the exact opposite happens when we pray. When we pray, we're put in the humble position of asking. You don't need to ask for something that you already have or something you can get or achieve on your own. When we pray, we're put in the almost humiliating position of acknowledging that all we have, that all we do, is only because of God's grace and mercy and love at work in our lives. So we need to ask for everything. Give us this day our daily bread. We need to ask for everything. Think of the traditional posture of prayer. What is it? It's on our knees, isn't it? That's the traditional posture of prayer. Now, it's not necessary to pray on your knees to have a right attitude of prayer. I can't kneel for very long without pain in my knees. So when I pray, I'll usually sit or sometimes I'll stand or I'll pace or sometimes I'll sit with the double face palm, right? Or I swim laps. Actually, I pray when I swim laps. But when we're on our knees, either figuratively or literally, we're pretty helpless. It's pretty easy to knock me over when I'm on my knees. That's because I'm in a relatively helpless posture. And you know what? I believe that's exactly the position God wants us in when we pray. He wants us not to just trust in him, but he wants us to depend on him as if we're helpless and as if everything depends on him because 
it does. When we do pray, when we do depend on him in the context of a regular and constant devoted prayer life, the irony then is that then we can do more. We can actually do more. John Bunyan once said, you can do more than pray after you have prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. For three years now, we've highlighted the perspective that though there may be many things we could do to see growth here at TCF, the most important thing we can and should be doing is pray. That's because Jesus uh, noted in Matthew chapter 9 that the harvest was plentiful, and he didn't follow that statement by saying that we needed to do something, that we needed a new church growth plan, that we needed an advertising campaign, that we needed to change this or that. No, the first thing, the only thing he said to do was pray. In Matthew chapter 9, verses 37 and 38, Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Has anyone else noticed that as we've done this, God has in fact brought more laborers for his harvest? You might think that because this has been an emphasis for three years, that because things like our monthly prayer advance actually developed from this prayer emphasis, because we have monthly corporate prayer meetings like we'll have this Wednesday night, because there's prayer going on in house churches, that perhaps we're doing well as individuals, as a church, in the area of prayer. Well, I can't speak for any of you as individuals, as I'm sure there are many here who have probably a more robust prayer life than me, and I would guess that there are many who don't have as active a prayer life as I do. But what I do believe is that wherever you fit on the spectrum, you can do, I can do, we can do better. Don Carson, I read a great book in preparation for this, It's called A Call to Spiritual Reformation, Priorities from Paul and His Prayers. In this book, he wrote, Some Christians want enough of Christ to be identified with him, but not enough to be seriously inconvenienced. They genuinely cling to basic Christian orthodoxy, but do not want to engage in serious Bible study. They value moral probity, especially of the public sort, but they do not engage in war against inner corruptions. They fret over the quality of the preacher's sermon, Nobody here is doing that this morning, I hope. But do not worry much over the quality of their own prayer life. Such Christians are content with mediocrity. We cannot justify our relative prayerlessness by saying that those who are peculiarly effective are more gifted than we. Wherever we stand in the spectrum of Christian maturation, we could do better than we do, and many of us could do much better. Now, I have to say that's convicting to me. That's convicting to me. I can do much better. Now, the last thing I want this to become is an exercise in legalism, where I'm keeping track of the amount of time and and things like that. Well, the gospel is clear. God doesn't love me any less when I am less faithful in prayer. My salvation is not dependent on how much I pray. It's dependent on the price that Jesus already paid for my sins. As I noted there, I know there are people here who are doing better in their prayer life than I am, and there are people who aren't probably doing as well. But that's not the point. The point is, what am I doing? How can I do better? How can I be, as Paul noted in the passage that we read at the opening, how can I be constant in prayer? Let me read that verse again. 
but with a little more of the surrounding context. This is Romans 12, the verse we read at the outset. The verse that's on your bulletin cover is verse 12. But let's read beginning with verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. And then here's the verse that we read earlier. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. And then he concludes this section with verse 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. So this admonition to be constant, to be persevering in prayer, is surrounded by counsel on how to relate to one another. Isn't that an interesting thing to consider? Isn't it also interesting what immediately precedes Paul's encouragement to us to be constant in prayer? He says, rejoice in hope. He says, be patient in tribulation. We can take these independently of each other and still find worthy encouragement in each phrase for our relationship with Christ. But for a moment, let's look at how these admonitions really support one another. One commentary suggested that we see that each of these things relates to the other, especially when we retain the order and verbs of the original. This commentary says, in hope, rejoicing, in tribulation, enduring, in prayer, persevering. Each of these exercises helps the other. If our hope of glory is so assured that it is a rejoicing hope, we shall find the spirit of endurance and tribulation natural and easy. But since it is prayer which strengthens the faith that begets hope and lifts it up into an assured and joyful expectancy, and since our patience and tribulation is fed by this, it will be seen that all depends on our perseverance in prayer. This is a clear example of how foundational our prayers are in all of our Christian life. So much of our Christian life is built on prayer. We rejoice in the hope of the resurrection, and we can be patient in trials and pain and suffering and tribulation because we know that this life is not all there is. Yet all of this is undergirded. All of this is strengthened by our fellowship with God in prayer. So we are to be constant in it. Other versions say faithful or devoted to or persevering in or steadfast in prayer. It's from the root to endure. We see this theme throughout Scripture in many other verses. For example, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17 says, Pray without ceasing. This is about a mental attitude of prayerfulness. This is about ongoing, continual fellowship with God. This is about being aware of His presence throughout each day. Now, of course, we cannot literally spend all of our time on our knees. Our jobs would be at risk, wouldn't they? If we said to our bosses, well, hey, the Bible tells me to pray without ceasing, so I'm going to have to find a closet and pray so those invoices or those boxes or those customers or whatever my work is, is just going to have to wait. But we can have a prayerful attitude at all times, praying as we go, communing with God in the midst of all our activities, short, silent prayers in the midst of whatever we're doing. A prayerful attitude To have a prayerful attitude means that we are acknowledging our constant dependence on God. That dependence doesn't change when we're working or studying or in class or doing housework 
or visiting with family and friends or reading or even watching TV. You know, it's interesting that Hallett picked the song, I Need Thee Every Hour this morning, because I thought of that preparing this message. And that's so true, isn't it? I need thee every hour. There's never a time when we don't need his grace. One of the means of grace that God has given us is prayer. And that's why we see these kinds of constant admonitions in his word. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 2, it says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And then, of course, there's the introduction to the parable of the persistent widow, where Jesus says, and he, or where it says, Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. We are to persist in, we are to be constant in, to continue in prayer. Prayer is not a spiritual luxury. Without prayer, our Christian lives will be largely ineffective. We say, don't we? We say we desire to advance the kingdom. Isn't that what we're about here at TCF? We say we want to live for him. We say we want to serve him. We say we want to be holy. Without prayer, we cannot grow in Christ. We cannot advance in these areas of service or holiness. Now, if you're like me, the first thing you might think after hearing a statement like the one I just made is this. But what about the word? But what about the word? Isn't it true that without the word of God, we cannot grow in Christ? We can't grow in holiness? We can't advance his kingdom? And yes, I believe that's true too. But we create a false dichotomy, an unnecessary separation, if we pit the word on the one hand against prayer on the other hand as spiritual disciplines because we need both. And in fact, they are essential to each other. For one, Scripture tells us that when we pray, we need to pray for God's will and not our own. How can we know God's will if we do not know his word? And we need to know it well and not just on a shallow level because people have found all kinds of things to pray for that they believe are God's will, citing Scripture as their evidence when the truth is they have wrongly interpreted the word. And a little related sidebar here, the fact that there's so many well-known teachers in our Christian culture who wrongly interpret the word is why I want to strongly encourage you to attend the Sunday night seminar now beginning next Sunday night. You need to be there. It's very important to be there. Paul encouraged Timothy in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. It's clear that if there is a right way to handle the word of truth, there must be a wrong way. That's why the elders felt it timely and vitally important to have this course on understanding your Bible. So starting next week, please plan to be there, plan to attend. This relates to our theme this morning. Again, because the Word guides our prayers. It enables us to pray according to God's will. There are other ways that the Word is vital to our prayer life. Quoting Don Carson's book again, by far the most important and most authoritative of the sources that continue to shape my prayer life is the Bible itself. The more we learn about God and his ways and his perspectives, the more we improve our grasp, not only of elemental theology, but of prayer as well. All praying presupposes an underlying theology, 
Conversely, our theology will have a decisive influence on our praying. Another thing that I've been convicted of as I've studied and read in preparation for this morning's message is the scope of my prayers as well as the emphasis. I've come to realize that in many cases, biblical priorities have not shaped my prayers as much as my own desires, and even some of those desires that are godly desires I have for others' well-being. A lot of my prayers are for things like protection, healing, provision, and you know what? That's okay. That's okay. When the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray, one of the things he prayed is give us this day our daily bread. That's about provision, isn't it? James wrote to pray for one another for healing. So there's nothing wrong with prayers like this for yourself or for others. But rather than saying that we shouldn't be praying prayers like that, I want to suggest that there are other things that we should also be praying for, things that according to the prayers that we see in Scripture are at least as important as praying for protection or provision or healing or whatever other felt needs we have. For example, how about this? A few weeks ago, Gordon preached on the purpose of suffering in the life of a believer. Now, if we realize that God uses suffering to accomplish or produce things in us, as Gordon noted, Scripture teaches, shouldn't we, in addition to praying for mercy and relief from suffering, also pray that God would use that in the life of the person that we're praying for? Or even for ourselves, when we're suffering, that God would produce in us, use that suffering to produce in us what he wills. Even as we hope and expect God's word to shape and mold our theology our morals, our behavior, the Bible must also shape our prayers. We could spend a whole sermon on the prayers of the various apostles in Acts or in the epistles and begin to understand their emphases in prayer. But for the sake of illustration this morning, let's just look at one of Paul's recollection of prayers that he prayed. This one's for the Thessalonian church. We see many of Paul's prayers for the New Testament churches at the beginning or end or both of his various letters to these churches. So let's take a look for a moment this morning at 2 Thessalonians. I'm going to read, it's a rather long passage, so if you have your Bibles, you might want to look along with me or bear with me as I read it, beginning with verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also are suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. And then, as we continue to read in light of what Paul wrote, about the second coming of Christ, we read about his prayer for the people in the church in Thessalonica, beginning with verse 11. To this end, to this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling 
and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and of Lord Jesus Christ. Let's first take a look at what Paul doesn't pray for. At least he doesn't tell them that he's praying for these things. Now, he might have, but we don't know. He didn't record that. In verse 4, he writes of the persecutions and the afflictions that they're enduring. Now, surely Paul could have thrown them a bone somewhere in this prayer for them and told them that he's praying for their protection from persecution and relief from their afflictions. But instead, what he writes is, to this end, that is, to the end of that day which will come when God is glorified in his saints, in this case, the Thessalonian church, and to be marveled at, that God would be marveled at, glorified among those who have believed. To that end, okay, here's what Paul prays. He prays that, first of all, they'd be worthy of God's calling. He prays that they would fulfill every resolve for good. That is, every good thing they intended to do that they would actually accomplish. Third, he prays that they would fulfill every work of faith by his power. And then he prays that the Lord Jesus would be glorified in and through the Thessalonians. So again, it wouldn't have been wrong for Paul to pray for their more temporal needs because, as we noted, we can find biblical warrant for those things too. Yet to me, it's very interesting to note what Paul didn't pray for and what he did pray for. When he told the churches that what he was praying for about... We don't have time to explore the many other passages, and there are many other, where Paul recounts to a New Testament church the things for which he was praying. But take a look sometime. I encourage you to do that. Take a look sometime at the beginning and end of his epistles where he says, I'm praying for you about this, I'm praying for you about that. And you'll find that his priorities in prayer were very different from what seemed to be my priorities or our priorities in prayer. This is one of the themes to which Paul returns again and again. We are to grow up into Christian maturity. In a strange paradox, Paul is constantly telling people, in effect, to become what they are. That is, since we are already children of God because of his free grace to us in Christ, we must now become all that such children should be. God has graciously called us. Now we must live up to that calling. Now, that cannot mean less than that we should become increasingly holy, self-denying, loving, full of integrity, steeped in the knowledge of God and his word, delighted to trust and obey our Heavenly Father. We are not strong enough or disciplined enough to take these steps ourselves. That is why Paul prays as he does. If the Holy God is to count us worthy of his calling, we must ask him for help. That's why Paul is praying. He's not simply asking the Thessalonians to try harder. He is praying for them to the end that God will count them worthy of his calling. Now, this idea makes me ask, when was the last time I prayed this kind of prayer for you, my church family? Do I spend more time asking for God's help for finding a good job or for provision or for health, as worthy as those prayers may be, than I spend time asking that God would so mold you and shape you into the image and likeness of Christ that you would be worthy of God's calling, living up to what God has saved you and is sanctifying you to be. 
We Christians must constantly be reminded of the fact that just as we were saved by grace, so also we are sanctified and glorified by grace. The point is implicit in the fact that Paul is here approaching God with petitions. That is, he's asking God to do something. Now, it's true what he is asking God to accomplish, that he might count these Christians worthy of his calling and so strengthen them by his power, that their good, faith-prompted purposes will be brought to fruition, also sets forth goals for the Christians themselves to pursue. But that he asks God to perform these things shows that he is deeply aware that God's grace must be at work if these petitions are to be answered at all. We become fruitful by grace. We persevere by grace. We mature by grace. By grace, we grow to love one another the more. And by grace, we cherish holiness and a deepening knowledge of God. Amen? Part of the challenge with my prayer life is that prayer is hard. Any amens to that? Prayer is hard. The monastics had a saying that prayer is work. To be honest with you, I'd much rather preach than pray. I'd rather study and read than pray. I'd rather lead a service on a Sunday morning than lead a prayer meeting. I'd rather attend or lead a house church meeting where there is a Bible study than a meeting that's devoted to nothing but prayer. But I pray anyway. I attend our prayer meetings anyway. In some, for some ways, prayer for me is a lot like exercise. I have to drag myself to do it, and I don't always really enjoy it, but I do it because I know I need it and I know it's good for me. I know it's best for me. I know it's spiritually healthy for me. I know and believe in the value that the Word of God places on our prayers. So I do it even when I don't want to, even when my flesh rebels, even when I don't feel like it, even when I'd rather do something else. Still, I want to grow in this means of grace. And even though I know that there are many of you who have wonderful prayer lives, I want us as a body at TCF to grow in this means of grace, individually and together, corporately, as a community in Christ. God's given us this means of grace to commune and communicate with him. There's so much more we could say about prayer because there's so much in the word about it, yet our understanding of prayer is still pretty thin if we think about it. For example, think about this. If God is omnipotent, which means he can do absolutely anything, and if he's omniscient, which means he knows everything, and those things are things that scripture teaches, he knows everything, including our thoughts, and he knows our prayers before we even think them, then why does he even want us to pray? Well, I don't know fully why that's so. And what I do believe about the answer to that question is another sermon altogether. For reasons that we can only begin to explore, we can only begin to ponder, God chooses to use our prayers to accomplish his purposes in our lives and in the world around us. Scripture makes that absolutely clear. So that makes prayer not only a necessity in our lives, but an awesome privilege. His word is clear that we are to pray from the model of Jesus himself who prayed often to the apostles, to the epistles. We see that prayer is meant to be a vital part of the life of every believer. J.C. Ryle said, no time is so well spent in every day as that which we spend upon our knees. 
The reformer John Calvin believed that prayer is the chief exercise of faith, the defining discipline of the Christian life. Now, if that's true, and I believe that it is, how do you want to be defined? How do we want to be defined as a church? Do we want to be defined as a believer, as an individual believer, as a body of believers with the awesome privilege of prayer at our disposal who don't avail ourselves of that privilege? Not me, folks. Not me. Not us, TCF. Ten will attend Bible teaching and 100 Sunday preaching to two or three who in prayer steadfastly continue. But be thou of that two or three, for they prevail, and to them Christ reveals himself, and they become channels of blessing to countless others. I want 2014 to define us even more fully than perhaps we already are as a church that's devoted not just to the fellowship, as we read in Acts, but devoted to prayer. It's said that the early African converts to Christianity were very earnest and very regular in their private devotions, and each one reportedly had a separate spot in the thicket where he would pour out his heart to God in prayer. So over time, the paths to these spots in the thicket became pretty well-worn. And as a result, if one of these believers began to neglect prayer, it was soon apparent to all the others. They would kindly remind the negligent one, brother, the grass grows on your path. Let's not let the grass grow on our paths. Let's have well-worn paths to wherever it is we pray. Let it never be said of any of us that the grass grows on our path to prayer. Let's redefine the phrase that's the sermon's title this morning, all you can do is pray. Let's redefine it to mean that instead of meaning that prayer is the last resort of the hopeless because we want to do something, let's take it to mean that prayer is all. Prayer is all. Prayer is the first, last, and everything of any circumstance in which we find ourselves. Amen? I think we need to respond to this this morning. So if this has convicted you in any way, and I'm not going to say how it should convict you, but if the Lord has spoken to you, why don't you stand with me, and I'm praying for myself as we close and pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we're grateful for this means of grace you have given us to commune with you, to speak to you, to bring to you our prayers and our petitions, and to, in some ways we can understand, Lord, to actually move your hand, Lord, a sovereign, omnipotent, omniscient God, but somehow, Father, you choose to use our prayers to accomplish your purposes, and we see this as an awesome and amazing privilege. And Lord, we also see it as so necessary for our growth in you. So Lord, we pray, I pray, I pray for all those here standing this morning, that you would help us in our prayer lives, Lord. You would help us when we struggle, You would help us when it seems a lot more like a work than a privilege, Lord. You would help us, Father, to change our hearts, to change our attitudes. Father, that we, whenever we say that phrase, all we can do is pray, that it would mean something new and something different in each of our hearts and each of our lives now, that it wouldn't be indeed the last resort of hopelessness, Father. But, Lord, it would be an acknowledgement that prayer is all, 
that prayer is foundational, that prayer is so necessary in each and all of our lives, Father God. We thank you, Father, for this wonderful privilege. We thank you, Lord, that this privilege is made possible by your grace, by the grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ who poured out his blood and saved us. And we're grateful, Father, that because of the blood of Jesus, we have access into your very throne room. Father, help us to take advantage of that access that we have and to do it regularly and devotedly and constantly and continually and perseveringly, Lord God. We thank you, Father, for this privilege, and we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would help us in our prayers, that we would be more defined, more defined, Father, as individuals and as a body that prays. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.